0: and welcome to The Sacred. My name is Elizabeth Oldfield, and this is a podcast about the people behind the positions in our public conversations. I'm interested in the deep principles and values that drive us, how little space we get to reflect on them, let alone talk about them in public, and how we can better understand people whose principles might be a bit different from our own. Every episode, I speak to someone who has some role in shaping our common life Politicians like today, but also journalists, artists, faith leaders, poets, documentary makers, academics, science writers, and they come from all over the place on the many, many issues that we disagree on. Listen for long enough and you will find someone who puts your back up, but I hope you will also get a better sense of why they believe what they believe, how they've got to where they are, and when you meet maybe them, or someone like them who holds that position, you will have just that little bit more empathy and patience. In this episode, I spoke to Tanny the Baroness Grey-Thompson, D-B-E-D-L, which is about the fifth very impressive title she's held. <laughs> she might have another one by the time uh, this episode airs, frankly. She is probably the most impressive guest I've had on. She is... Uh, one of the most successful British athletes of all time. She has won 16 Olympic medals, 11 of which were gold, as well as a whole load of other world championship medals and records, um, in wheelchair racing. And she's now an active member of the House of Lords, sits on about a million other boards, and honestly, I don't know when she sleeps. We spoke about how not sporty people like me can understand the um, the world of professional athletes and what drives them and the role sport plays in society. We spoke about her approach to politics, her doggedness, all of the things she's received from her parents, and what has and hasn't changed for disabled people in society. There are some reflections at the end from me as usual, and I really hope you enjoy listening. Tani, I am going to do something quite mean, which is Not go in with a nice, gentle, what did you have for breakfast type question. Um, But go straight for depth because I'm terrible at small talk. I am overly earnest and I always want to know what's driving people underneath uh, their day-to-day lives. So I want to ask you what is sacred, but that's not a standard question. So to give you some uh, parameters, you can take it any way you like. I tend to ask people to bracket out their family and their loved ones because I think that's a shared sacred for all of us. And that's lovely. Um, but it's really about a principle or a value or, um, a way of being in the world that has felt very central to the way you've tried to live, that shapes your decisions. Um, and don't worry if it feels very tentative because actually I think none of us really know until it's transgressed and we get that ick factor of like, uh, no. And one of the tests is that if someone tried to offer you money to give this thing up, you would feel insulted somehow, or um, very compromised at the idea. Um, so it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a strange one. But I'd love you to just reflect aloud for me and see what comes up.
1: So it feels like it's going to be a really easy one to answer until you actually start trying to answer it. And um, so for me, it's about the values, about the way I behave, which actually has come from my family, from my my parents, my sister, and husband, and other people. Uh, It's about how, you know, trying to treat people how I would like to be treated myself. Although there are times when that doesn't happen, you know, know, if you've had a bad day and someone is just being extra patronizing, you know, all the things I do about I try to educate people and, you know, be positive and walk away. You know, it's it's hard. I think age helps with a little bit of that. You know, just the more times you have stuff thrown at you, you get better at, at dealing with it. But I think a lot of it is about um, trying to make things better um, Mm -hmm. and using the platform that I've been very privileged to have, either through sport or politics, to try and move things to a better place. Now, the reality of that is that some people like what I do and some people (laughs) don't like what I do. Um, And when you put yourself um, out there, a lot of, you know, Dislike and, and worse comes with that. So, I think actually the stuff that you hold sacred and how you want to behave is really important to have. So, when times are hard and you're getting a lot of grief from people, you still have that line that, that you, you won't cross. So, you know, as an athlete, I was put in positions where, you know, I was offered sponsorship deals that didn't feel right or, you know, patched, you know, that, that you just go, no, actually, I'm not going to do that. Um, we have this debate in my, my family about when you say money, okay, how much money would it take to do a reality show? You know, and I kind of joke that there isn't enough money. And then you go, well, no, there is. But, um, (laughs) but you, you kind of always hope that, you know, I, I think for me, it's every day it's getting up and be able to look at myself in the mirror for the stuff that I do. And, and that's the bit that's, that's quite important. So it's a really hard one to answer. Really interesting, actually, to spend some time reflecting, to think about what, what those lines are.
0: Thank you. Yeah, I think you're, you've really helped me clarify, like 200 of these interviews in, how closely the sacred is related to integrity? And that, maybe that's an easier way for people to think about it. Like, what is beh- where is your wall of integrity and what's behind it? Like, what is the thing you're protecting? with your integrity. And we sort of fit, fe- we assume that everyone has the same kind of things. And hopefully we have some things that we all share, but that actually some things might feel like they're jeopardizing our integrity, but other people don't feel that at all. They feel very comfortable. But another thing that we would think is fine really presses up against their, um, their sacred values or their, their guiding principles. Can you, does something come to mind? And I, maybe it is that sponsorship, but something come to mind about where, where it's shaped your life, a moment in your life where it's a decision in either direction has, has been changed because of that sense of integrity?
1: Um, so I think, you know, some of the things that I work on in politics are really hard things. Um, you know, uh, the, the happiest stuff I work on is sport and physical activity, but, but actually that's linked to us as a nation being woefully unhealthy and, You know, kind of tearing the NHS apart because we're a healthy nation. So even that's not that cheery to some extent. The hard, some of the hard stuff I work on is um, around things like, you know, I I don't believe we should be changing the law on assisted suicide, and putting yourself in a position where you know you're going to get a lot of grief for it. Um, And it's emails, face to face, like you know, it's you know, having letters saying you know I'm cruel and I want people to die painfully and you know it, it's that bit do I walk away and just go do you know what I'm just not going to do that. I'm going to do the nice stuff that I do or am I yeah. actually going to put myself in a position where I fight for not just what I believe but from talking to other people and you know what I think is is, is right so um that there, there are oh, there's loads of times where you think it would just be easier to walk away yeah and then I don't and my mum was amazing because she always just said she she never felt she was given more than she could cope with. Even though sometimes what she was dealing with was really hard, she always felt that it was a bit of a test. And I think that's sort of um, kind of lived through in, in
0: in me as well. Yeah, I'd love to hear a bit more about your childhood and and kind of big formative ideas, I guess, that were in the air—philosophical or political or religious—that you feel shaped woman that you are today
1: um so both my parents had strong faith um and um my mother was welsh speaking methodist oh oh the complications of welsh church
0: uh yes. my
1: dad was uh english speaking high church and um finding a church that they could both go to uh, yeah. was was quite complicated <laughs> uh and that that changed sort of over time so um We never, there's a lot of stuff we never talked about at home. We never talked about faith. Um, I've got quite a complicated relationship with faith. Uh, And uh, we never talked about party politics, never knew how my parents voted. Um, But we talked a lot about political issues. Um, And, you know, we, we, I grew up in a very um, privileged household in which there was love and support and you know, there's lots of things we didn't have to worry about growing up, which uh, my parents also told me about quite a lot. <laughs> you know, so I kind of realised from a young age the privilege I had, and the fact that my parents were willing to fight for me to get to mainstream education, to get into sport, they they not, you know, they had the capacity and the ability to do it. Um, mm. You know, my my father threatening to sue the Secretary of State for Wales over my right to go to mainstream school when I was 11 is so cool. You know, and then for me you know, the person who who did a lot of work on that, Baroness Warnock, Mary Warnock, Um, you know, 30 years after her legislation, I got to sit in the House of Lords chamber in a debate tabled by her about the 30 years since her work and say, because of you, I am here. I mean, to be fair, she didn't look that impressed, but, um, (laughs) you know, you have these sort of circular moments. So, again, my parents were always, okay, you know, you've got privilege. Uh, and, And before we kind of you know, talked about some of these things or had the words to describe some of it. But my dad would say to me, you're privileged, you know, do do something with it. Don't just sit on your backside and take it all. You've got to give something back. But that came through sport through my early coaches, um, Roy Anthony, Dave Williams, my, my very early coaches. They were all about giving something back. Um, and you kind of hope that most of the time you do stuff that most, more people approve of than disapprove of. But, you yeah. know, when you challenge, you've, you've, yeah, you've you've got to own it.
0: What comes through, kind of reading and listening to you, is is just how can do your parents were and how much they imparted that to you. Um, can you talk a little bit about the because you 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 weren't a will uh, a wheelchair user from birth. It ca- it came a bit later, and how how that what that meant at home and 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 how you as a family processed that transition.
1: So. My older sister was born with a heart condition and dislocated hips. And then when I came along, it was diagnosed that I had spina bifida. Uh, I could walk a little bit when I was young, not very well. My legs, legs never really developed. Um, and then very slowly I became paralyzed because my spine collapsed and my own vertebra severed my spinal cord. So I knew I had spina bifida. We talked a bit about implications. My mum and dad were always very keen when I was, and I didn't spend any time in hospital really, but when I went to for hospital appointments, Mum was always very keen that I asked questions and and understood my condition which I think was quite um important for me. She made the doctors talk to me not her even when I was like She just five sounds six so old. empowering as a woman. Oh, she, I mean my oh, my mother was a strong feisty woman and it's kind of funny because my dad always wrote the the letters about education stuff like that my mum was definitely behind him you know um you know sort of push yeah I mean Behind every great man, there's an amazing woman, isn't it, or whatever the quote is. Um, so, yeah, no, really empowering. And then apparently when I was born, the only question my mum asked was, could I have children? She didn't ask anything else. <laughs> um, but it's kind of, when I became started struggling to walk and then became a wheelchair user, my parents refused to make the house wheelchair accessible. And I think there were people who thought my mum and dad were really cruel. Um, but... My parents didn't want to make it the only place that I could live. they didn't want me living at home with them forever because you know they were saying their job as a parent is to get your child to be independent and then I was like five when the first person stopped me in the street and asked me why my why my parents hadn't aborted me and mum having a really open conversation with me about abortion, and you know she didn't shy away from it and explained what it was and and she was right and she'd said um." if she'd realized, if there'd been diagnostics and if she'd known that I was going to have spina bifida, she probably would have terminated. Now, people get really upset by that. And it's like, but she never said, having had you, I wish I'd terminated you, you know. And, and so having these really big, you know, open conversations, I think was 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 important for me because it also helped me think about stuff and, and deal with... You know so the next person who asked me that, um, I had more skills to do, and I was probably six when the next person asked me that. Having more skills to, to deal with my mother, she was brilliant, she's just go, they're an idiot. Yeah, they're an idiot. Everyone was, you know, who, who told anyone who told me I couldn't do something was an idiot. Um, and yeah, I, I think that that made a, a huge difference because you do have to deal with a lot of stuff, you know, people, um you know, come and ask deeply personal questions. You know, when I was pregnant, I lost count of the number of people who asked me how I got pregnant. You know, and... Wow. um, There was a moment, this this is not one of my finest moments. I was about eight and a half months pregnant in Cardiff. Somebody asked me and I screamed... Um, Across the street, Uh, I had sex with my husband. How did you think I got pregnant? And then I went, "My God!" Oh, oh, I said that. I said that out loud. Oh,
0: oh, I mean, fair enough. What was she expecting? Like, it's so nosy. Yeah.
1: So you need to do. So as an athlete, people are nosy. As a parliamentarian, people are nosy. So as a disabled person, so my parents helped give me the skills to deal with nosiness. I probably do slightly overshare now, but that's just because I've had so many personal questions asked about me over the years.
0: Yeah. I have I have really loved sort of getting to know your parents at One Remove and their kind of historic fight to get you into um, mainstream school, which seems ridiculous that it was a fight, but it was. When you were in your early teens, I think you had a very, quite a significant operation. Tell, tell me a little about that, because that feels like it must have been some sort of beat in the song of your teenage years.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think we... So my spine was collapsing. I've got scoliosis. Um... Because of that, my lungs and all my internal organs are in a really strange place inside me. Uh, so, my right kidney is somewhere up underneath my arm, which is kind of funny. Uh, whenever I go for a scan, and you go, that's where it is. I'm like, you should, yeah. Up a bit up, a bit, up a bit, yeah, up a bit. Yeah. And like, have you got two? Yeah, I've got two kidneys, just one's in a strange place. Anyway, um, so we knew it was coming uh, at some point. Uh, I still remember that that appointment where the doctor said, Mr. Samba, you're coming in in January and you're having the spinal surgery. Uh, and a metal rod was, you know, put into my spine, bone grasped both hips to to tie the rod on. But again, they were my parents are really matter of fact about it because they're like, okay, if if you don't have this, you'll die. You know, it will be a slow and painful death because you will slowly, you know, your internal organs will just, you know, be <laughs> squished. So yeah, you know, um, so yeah, very very matter of fact about some stuff about choice. Um, but actually, some of those so wasn't. So actually, I was. Um, it was kind of funny that I was only in hospital three weeks. Came out massive plaster cast jacket, which went from my chin to my hips. Uh, six months that was on. absolutely stuff. My sister used to just come and spray perfume. I mean, it was revolting. Um, after six months, but I remember going back for a checkup about five or six weeks after um, the operation, and um, my doctor saying to me, oh, how's the home tutoring going?" And it's like I'm not, not being tutored at home. You Know what do you mean? I'm back at school. Uh, when 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 but when you going back I went no no i came out of hospital and literally the next monday mum sent me back to school and, and he was in like full oh,
0: body cast full body
1: cast yeah yeah and she was like you know, but uh, do you know what what i remember was that um was like because it was it had to keep your chin absolutely fixed for the bone graft in it um having to drink drink out of a sippy cup um, and and really struggling to eat because you couldn't see what you were eating, so you used to have to hold yeah. the plate up on your chin and sort of scoop it in. And I remember uh, it's funny. What I remember coming out of hospital and, and suddenly realising I was going to eat, and my sister just you know standing up, go and getting a tea towel, and just wrapping the tea towel around my neck while I was trying to. So you know, yeah, they, they, they were amazing in terms of you know you just there are some things you've just got to get on with, you know it wasn't yeah. it wasn't a choice at the end. Uh, your
0: your mum must have. And your dad must have had times of being overwhelmed and weary and weepy at watching you have to go through stuff that not every kid goes through. did they show you that do they do they reflect on that later?
1: Oh they never showed it to me um, a few years after my mum passed away, my dad did say there were times where you know my mum found it very difficult um but you know she had this sort of innate spirit and and she never showed it um and I think that was quite interesting that they they protected me from that and they felt able to I think um there's a part that my mum's faith uh, i I think and, and my 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 dad's faith had had a lot to do with that but again no it was it's hard to tell really because you know even that conversation with my dad was quite short about um how they dealt with some of those things so uh yeah it's I think, you know, with my sister, my parents used to joke that they weren't great at having kids because my sister was born with some health conditions as well. But we were never, as children, we were never ill at the same time. And actually, Mm -hmm. neither of us were particularly ill either. So I I think that's where, you know, mum's sort of view came from was that, you know, you're given things that you need to deal with and also the stuff you're given
0: you have to step up and deal with. Yeah. I'm going to ask, but feel free to bat it away because asking about someone's faith or lack of or uh, questions feel sometimes more intrusive than asking about someone's sex life. So full (laughs) permission to bat it away. But you alluded to it being complicated. Lots of people brought up in Christian homes. The teenage years is real crunch time, you know, for or against. Would you mind saying a little bit more about that for us?
1: Yeah, so um, I I stopped going to church in my early teens. um, And a couple of reasons... Having a bit of a discussion with my Sunday school teacher where he told me God was a man. And me saying, how do you know God's a man? It's like, because he is, because men are in charge. And you like, ooh, that's a bit of a conflict with, oh. you know, my view on men and women. So that, that was sort of interesting. Um, my dad went absolutely ballistic with me uh, once, where um, on the census I'd put I was a Jedi. And... Honestly, he was just like that's just stupid, you know. And it was like, I I have something which is a guiding principle in my life, which comes back to the question you asked me at the beginning. Um, and but it's not about religion or going to church. There's loads of stuff my brain just can't comprehend or understand, um, either with religion or about the creation of the world, because where did it come from before the Big Bang, you know? And so. Um, for me, that there is something which is it is is a faith, but it's not a religious faith, if that makes sense. Um, and I, I suppose everyone's seen it. You know, I, I I've got friends who've got strong faith who are amazing people. Don't talk, you know, just get on with stuff. I I see people who purport to be religious and then behave in ways. You know, behave one way on a Sunday and behave a different way the other six days of the week. So for me, yeah, it's that there's something there, but it's not for me. It's not going to church, and I, because my parents moved around a bit um, because of their background, um, we experienced several different churches growing up. And um, I went to Lords as an eleven year old. I um, mean, it's really funny. I mean, my mother was a massive fan of sports. She got a call from the local Catholic church. And they said, would Tani like to go to Lords?" And my mum said, I'm not sure if she likes cricket. I know, it's really funny. I tell everyone. And, and they went, no, no, Lords in front. And my mum said, oh, sorry. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I got ex- to experience lots of, of different um, sort of churches, which we're lucky with. So the, the going to bit on a, the Sunday is the bit I probably struggle with because it's more than – it's when people – you know, have their kids christened just in case, or go to church at Christmas, and to me that just feels really false. You either go or you don't. You know, just oh, so it is really complicated to explain that. You know, um, you know, I
0: think it's for everyone.
1: Yeah, I mean, even I'd say even my friends who who would say they have strong faith, it's hard hard to explain. I, I suppose the people I'm I'm reluctant to be around the people who tell me they've got faith and tell me how religious they are because then you kind of usually you you. you and this is probably a gross generalisation, they're saying that for a reason, rather than just behaving in a certain way every single day of your life and with every interaction with people. Mm. So yeah, probably Jedi describes it better than anything else, even though Dad was so mad. Wonderful.
0: I mean, I feel like there's something, there must be some sort of sport-related spiritual path because it's been so, so central in your life. Do you remember... The, t- the the moment where you were like, yes, this is what I want to do. I imagine there was a lot of sport just growing up because your parents were very sporty, but was there a kind of click moment?
1: Yeah, uh, first wheelchair race I did, I was 12 and I didn't win. And it was just like, but this is amazing. This is absolutely amazing. Uh, and that was it really. Um, you know, I played other sports. Dad was very keen that I played other sports till I was 16. Um, ahead of his time in a lot of ways. I mean, because actually that's something we've come back to in sport now, but, you know, saying to kids, you know, don't just pick one sport and do that and nothing else. Um, and, you know, he was very much, yeah, you can do wheelchair racing, but you've got to do other stuff. You've got to, you know, work hard at your studies. You know, you can go off and be an athlete, but you've got to get a degree first because you have to have something to fall back on. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, th- th- there was that moment where I just knew it was wheelchair racing and nothing else. That th- There was a point where I thought I might play basketball, And I loved it as a sport, but there wasn't really a team where I lived. So I think if there'd been a team um, where I lived, I think I probably would have done that. But actually, uh, I wouldn't have ever been any good at it. You know, I might have made... um, Junior squad or senior squad, but I I never would have excelled in it. Where wheelchair racing was the thing that just clicked with me. So I liked I liked the training on my own. I liked actually training with other people. I liked the fact I was in control of my destiny. It was about how hard I trained, and it was about training every single day and making no excuses for, um, you know, not training. I mean, growing up, I saw lots of athletes who tinkered around the edges, there was one guy I trained with you know, he used to weigh the bolts of his chair and he used to weigh his food and yeah, we were very you know, spent a lot of time being you know, thoughtful about that but you've actually just got to go out and train twice a day, six days a week, 50 weeks of the year. That is that's the bottom line and then the other stuff is the the added extras you know, you there, there's just the bore, and training is really boring, it's really dull you know, competing in Sydney in front of 100,000 people is amazing but you know, you've got to do the dull stuff and that and, and that's true, actually, in the stuff I do now. You've got to do the dull stuff to get to do the nice stuff.
0: Yeah. So I'm going to say something that might be slightly offensive. But this is a podcast about listening to people from a very wide range of perspectives and trying to engage across our differences and grow in empathy. I don't really understand sport. <laughs> <laughs> and it's... A, it's My husband really does. And uh, we ha- I have... Tr- he, I, you know, I love him and respect him so deeply. He's the most thoughtful man I know, and this is a great source of joy in his life. So I keep trying to, to understand it, right? To get involved, but I'm not there yet. I'd love you to hear, as a lover of the games, what is it that you love? What is it that draws you? What is the thing that athletes are prepared to sacrifice so much for to go out and do the boring stuff day in, day out? What is it that's calling you?
1: So I would say I would. I never got massively emotional in big chunks of my own career. There are a couple of moments where I did, where Athens, I spectacularly lost my 800-meter final, which was my strongest event, and then won my 100, which was my weakest event. And, and both those were very emotional. It's that will you, won't you? You know, you, you give every single thing. You dig deep. You know, when you're in a race and you're sprinting for the finish line, there is nothing left. And you're against, you know, whether you're the best in the world or the level, you know, I am now where, you know, I don't actually have anyone to sprint against because I'm really slow. So, um, you know, it's knowing that you have given every last ounce of everything that's inside you to be the best you can, whatever speed you're going. And, you know, people say, do I miss training? "No, No, not really. There's a little bit I miss when you do this amazing training session and it used to be 400-meter reps that was the one that did it, where as you cross the line, you're not entirely sure if you're going to pass out puke or you've done something amazing. Hmm. There are very few times that you can recreate that outside sport. I mean, I'm not sure there are, certainly not that bit, where you feel you've given every last bit of everything that you are. Um, And I love watching that in other people. I love watching people, you know, come from behind and cross the finish line and whether they win or don't win, do really well for themselves. So, um, yeah, I, I think if you don't have that connection with it, you can't fake it. I just, yeah. I don't think you can fake a love of sport if you don't actually love it because you but, just don't have that emotion.
0: Yeah. So you've helped me. So one piece of the puzzle that helped me uh, was about the kind of narrative. The time I can understand it is when my husband sits down and narrates the Premier League as if it's a thriller. Right. You've got the underdogs and you've got the bad guys with all the money who don't train their own people, you know, and it becomes, it just falls into like a cinematic scrappy, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, storyline. And then I can sort Mm -hmm. of get it, but then sitting down and watching the match feels pointless. I just want to know whether the underdog or lost or won. (laughs) I just want some
1: penalties at the end. That's what you want to watch. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) But you've given me another piece of the puzzle, which is about transcendent moments, because I'm very interested in transcendent moments, moments of awe and ecstasy and unselfing and kind of getting out of our rational brains, experiencing life, you know, sucking the marrow out of life. And I hadn't associated it with sport, but the way you've talked about it has really helped me see that that what you're looking for is that is that intensity, right? That high of, it, of winning or losing, I guess. that it is, you really feel fully alive. Is that a fair description?
1: Yeah, and, and the emotion with winning and losing, um, you know, it's not as easy to say if you win, you're really happy, and if you don't win, you're sad. Because it's, you know, I've, uh, it, it's so much more complicated. It's not a binary, binary thing. But you know, training is hard and it's boring, and you know you push yourself. And there are these moments in your career. I remember us um, competing in in Gothenburg, four hundred meter track race, and uh, you have a heart monitor on, you've got a speedo, you've got all this sort of tech on the chair, you know, that you can look at what you're doing at various segments of the race, and and just in that moment, knowing that I was my heart rate was really high, um, knowing that you can do it. You know, and I i don't know whether I actually remember the race in slow motion, but I kind of think I remember the race in slow motion. I kind of think I remember every single push of it. I don't, probably don't. That's the cinematic mm. view I've, lens I've put on it going backwards. But, um, you know, you have these moments when you're thinking, you used to do a lot of lab testing and you've got your maximum heart rate. And then when you're a race and your heartbeat is above your maximum heart rate, you kind of go, I'm not meant to be able to do this, but I'm doing it right now. Um, and so we used to do this test called VO2, which basically pushed to exhaustion until you're kind of a bit of a mass of jelly on a treadmill. And if you do one of those VO2s really well, it is just the most amazing feeling. Um, wow. But then it's, it's kind of funny because you get journalists. I remember when my daughter was born, a journalist ringing me up about two days later and saying, which is more important, your gold medals or your daughter? And you're like, oh, uh, gold medals. You know, I mean, it's like.
0: That's a you, very yeah, subtle I mean, question it, there.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of quite funny. It's quite funny seeing people's reaction if you say gold medals, but um, and I don't mean that. But you know, there's um, there are just these moments in your life that you can't recreate in anything else that I've I've ever done. So that's where I feel a sense of privilege as well that I got to compete. You know, at at the highest level, and I did a 10k oh 18 months ago. I was so. I mean, it's the slowest 10k I have ever done in my entire life. But I remember g- coming across the finish line and being like, almost bouncing. And my husband was like, "That was so slow. It was it was four minutes quicker than my half marathon PB. So twice the distance." And and I was like, "But but I did it." And he was like, "Okay." And and feeling that sense of um, pride's a bit too strong a word because. But it was like I went out and did something that, at my age now, is really hard to do. So, I think what sport yeah. teaches me is that you can do things that are really hard, you know, and you can yeah. fail, and I've failed lots in my sports career and lots of my political career but but you can quite often push yourself harder than you think you can
0: yeah let's let's talk a bit about that kind of political um, i guess whole second career slash parallel career of your life and if it's all right, I wanted to just do a little um explainer first because. I think when we talk about disability in public, which alongside sport is the key thing that you kind of campaign and, and work on, there are terms that are very familiar in the disability community but really unfamiliar outside it and are so key for understanding some of the debates and how they work and the misunderstandings. Would you just say a little bit about the medical model of disability and the social model of disability and the other one, if you think it's relevant, but no pressure.
1: So for me, you know, I grew up in a medical um, model of the world where you know i was treated differently because my disability because it was almost like you're blamed for being disabled uh and the social model is actually it's about society's fault that i or others can't integrate in the way that some non-disabled people can you know if there were no steps in this world then you know my life would be very different if the tube was step free my life would be very different so it's about taking it away from the individual and putting that responsibility on society to change and, and do better. The reality is we still live in quite a medicalised world. You know, the, the benefit system, disabled people have to prove what they can't do to get support. And I lost a philosophical argument in the Welfare Reform Bill years ago now, saying, actually, can we sw- switch it around? And if we give someone this much money, what can they do with it? As opposed, to, you know, t- trying to change the whole way that we think about what we do with people. Um, I guess... You know, part of that debate is in sort of basic rate of income, you know, debate that, you know, Wales and other countries are having. So, um, yeah, it's, it's an interesting one because I'm still treated in quite a medical way. I'm actually just writing an article at the moment about people offering me help. And people making a judgment whether I need help or not. And even when you say no, they go to help you anyway. And it's like, so what is it about me that you don't think I have the capacity to make that decision, whether Mm -hmm. I can do that or not do it? And and sometimes these things are really difficult. Because I had someone quite recently offer me help. I said, no, they offered me help again. I said, I'm fine, thanks. And they offered a third time and I said, no. And they went, well, I was just trying to help you. You're so ungrateful. It's like, (gasps) I'm so ungrateful. But I said to you three and I I said to them, you know, I, I very politely said to you three times, I'm fine. And mm. and they still decided that I didn't have capacity. So it's it's the moments like that. They they're the moments that test me. Yeah. Because there's a teeny bit you want to go, just go away. And then you go, No, I'm not I'm not gonna do that. I'm not gonna do that. Um, but those are the moments that are quite hard because people are not listening to what I say. So um,
0: yeah, it's. Uh, do you ever want to do a like Superman type thing of going, "I am the Baroness Grey Thompson," just to get them to <laughs> go away? Oh, not, oh, no, because no. <laughs> yeah.
1: you might because you never you that is never a winning argument.
0: Um, I know, and then that's going to be in the Daily Mail. But yeah, no, no, uh, no, no, no. just I, I, like I, take me seriously.
1: Yeah. I, I did have a situation uh, in, in a different context years ago where somebody wasn't very polite to me and then basically went, oh, we want to take your name. And I gave them my name and they said, is that Mrs. And I was a dame at the time. And I said, actually, I'm, I'm Dame Tanny Ray Thompson. And suddenly their behavior changed towards me. And it's like, yeah. seriously, mate, if if you couldn't be nice to me when I was like, just me, don't be yeah. nice to me because I've, I've got, you know, a, a DBE. So, um yeah it's you, you you have these moments where um it's it's inter- i did throw my shoes at somebody once i mean not actually at them but i mean it was sort of in their dro- i was really mad i was I, I uh i was trying to get on a train and i was preg- again pregnant uh quite late on I had a really long day in london just wanted to get home and somebody put me on a train to leeds and went, i'll just go to leeds and change and it's like i just want to i just want to go home and i had to yeah. crawl off the train so I took my shoes off, so I didn't lose them down onto the track because I crawled off the train eight months pregnant and kind of threw them onto the platform. And then you're in that situation where you go, "I've now got to walk and pick up my shoes." So I say, "Walk and be pushed." You yeah, know, I'm not. So do I just walk away and leave the shoes, or do I just go and, pick, and it was like, "I really like those shoes." So had, and there's nothing dignified about having to walk across a platform to pick up a pair of shoes that you've thrown in the direction of somebody. Yeah. Like bless him, I mean, I think he at that point he I don't think he'd realized I was pregnant. I hit it quite well, and um, I think by that point he was he was just like, Oh my God, this poor woman yeah he 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 was very kind to me after that.
0: I know that it must be incredibly wearying, I think, like it is for people of color to be constantly explaining themselves and helping people understand nuances around language and stuff it, it must be very worrying for you. You have to do it day in and day out. So I kind of made sure I went away and refreshed my memory about where, you know, best language, et cetera, et cetera. And we'll put all that in the show notes. But I guess I'm asking you not such a technical question, but more of a kind of what do you wish people knew for listeners who maybe don't know anyone who's disabled or um, just haven't had um, much encounter in their lives, haven't had the kind of prompt to educate themselves around it. Mm. What, what would you wish they understood? What is the thing that would make your life, would make it easier for people to be a blessing, not a curse to you when they meet you? I think it's just trying
1: to think about disabled people and disability and impairment. Um, and, you know, it's just so much the time. We're, we're not an homogenous group. Even someone with a similar impairment as mine will have a very different experience. Um, but we're 20% of the population. And it feels like we just never have that moment where, you go, okay, right, you're, you're going to be part of the decision-making process. So either decisions made for disabled people with no disabled people in the room, not consulting, not paying disabled people for their advice, um, you know, or just expecting it, you know, to um, expecting us to be grateful for having the smallest scrap of inclusion. And so I don't get frustrated about having to kind of have that argument because I think for me that's part of what you know my mum and dad would say to me you know you've got you gonna have a platform you know just I, I actually get quite energized about explaining to people because you're thinking okay well at least someone's come to ask so or or in a situation where I can talk about these things but it's that bit about having to be grateful and I think the other bit is that um not not assuming that being disabled is the worst thing in somebody's life now Again we're not all the same it, but there's this assumption that every disability must be awful, and it must be tragic and it must be sad and that you must live in pain and and so yeah, some people do, but a lot of people don't if there's one thing I could do in government, it'd be splitting up the way that we're referred to as sick and disabled because mm. that just lumps loads of people in together, and I don't think that's helpful, so I think it would be you know just just being thought about you know just. And again, the privilege I have, you know, because people know I'm a wheelchair user, I get treated so differently to the vast majority of disabled people I know. And I still experience discrimination. And, um, you know, I kind of see it as my job not to speak on behalf of, because I I see it as empowering other disabled people to have a voice, to be able to talk about their experience uh, and and support. I'm in an amazing WhatsApp group where... We we talk about disability access and cake, because when things get too hard, we talk about cake uh, and biscuits and things like that. But but that support network um is is really important to be able to then re-energize yourself to start the next day and and yeah. to 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 have another fight. I say the word fight. But I thought our moment was gonna be in the pandemic when compulsory do not attempt resuscitation orders were put on thousands and thousands of disabled people with no underlying health conditions. And people just shrugged and went, yeah. And that, we, we haven't had our moment yet where we treat disabled people as genuinely included parts of society. It happens in lots of places, but not across the board. And that's true for other protected characteristics. But we, we still live in a place where it is harder for disabled people to just survive.
0: Yeah. I want to talk a bit about assisted suicide because it is related. And I know that it's a very painful, difficult subject and listeners will have a range of positions and a range of kind of emotional responses to the topic we had Dame prude on in the last series who is very involved in campaigning for it. But um, I know there's a particular connection with disabled people and assisted dying. And I'd love you to say a little bit more about your work around it and how you've kind of arrived at the position that you have.
1: Yeah, I think if you'd asked me 25 years ago, I would have had uh, a different view. Uh, and I absolutely do not want to see anybody, you know, in pain, suffering. But the challenge is how you put a policy in place that offers protection. And those who want to change the law, they're able, you know, there's a top a couple, you know, couple of top line things they say, you know, six months diagnosis, two doctors. The devil is in the detail. Uh, of, of actually, you know, working that through, and you know, in Canada, there's one doctor who's helped 300 people and their lives. There's another doctor who's helped 400 people. You know, there's doctor, there's without going into all the jurisdictions, there's some massive safety concerns that I have about being able to guide through, you know, people through the process. And you know, somebody colleague of mine said to me, you know, where there's a will, there's a relative. You know, and people's motivations are not always selfless you know they're they're not so the the worry I have for disabled people is that if we live in a society where I'm still fighting to get disabled people into mainstream education where only half the disabled people who can work actually have a job it compulsory do not attempt resuscitation orders you know all these things where you know people are made to feel worthless the option is they will request this, and you know having two doctors just go, Are "You sure this is what you want to do?" and it be signed off, is a worry because it it leads us down a uh, a very dystopian path to the future. Um, you know, in Canada, people who live in poverty have requested it. Uh, there's a case which is in the media: a Paralympian, she asked for support for a ramp for her house. And she was offered assisted suicide. Uh, and, you know, th- this is not... For me, it's not a, a solution to fix society's ills, you know. So I think it's um, it's a very, you know, big decision we're making. My mum my died of leukaemia, not in the best way. Uh, and my my father passed away with, with uh, something else, but again, better, but not brilliant. But, you know, we we need to actually make sure that we put in proper palliative care, proper support for people, proper social care support, not not just jump to this as a solution to... to and, and it's it's very emotive. It is really emotive. Um, and, and I get that. But um, I, I think it's a very dangerous path for us to go down.
0: And finally, on kind of politics, and I'm sort of zooming out a bit into how we engage across our differences more generally, because my itch, my concern and my, my question about society is that we're not necessarily getting better at understanding people different from ourselves people who disagree yeah. with us you are spending so much of your time in this building which is set up <laughs> to be adversarial with two yeah. sides shouting at each other you're a crossbench peer which is a really interesting position to be in what have you learned about how we engage across our differences, you know how you engage with someone who disagrees with you on assisted dying or or a whole range of other things, what helps us keep yeah. seeing each other as fully human rather than doing these dehumanizing things
1: It's really interesting because you know uh the House of Commons is quite different from the House of Lords. you know we have no career path in the House of Lords, you know so it's not about scoring political point. It does happen, but not to the same extent it does in the commons. I always find it fascinating where you see people in the commons, you know, potentially looking like they're having a go at each other and then walking out and actually quite good mates with each other. So I think my my frustration is, you know, Prime Minister's questions is theatre. Some people are better at it than others. Um, You know, it can be witty, amusing and brilliant, and it can be tedious and horrendous. But that is not politics. That is just a tiny little sort of part of it. Um, I think it's about listening. Um, and you know, on social media, I follow a whole range of people and some people who I think have absolutely appallingly dreadful, awful views on the world, but you've got to listen to them because, You've got to keep sense-checking what you think. My, I changed my mind on all sorts of things. And in the Lords, actually, you can do that. You can go into a debate and say, at the start of the debate, I thought this. I've listened to you lot. And now this, well, except I'm not allowed to call them you lot. But, you know, you you know, can say, you know, it's, it's easier friends. to go, this is where I am. And I think you've got to continually sense-check what you think. What I thought at 20 and what I think now on a whole range of things is quite different. Um, some of it's... You, somebody could argue because I've gone down a rabbit hole some I could argue because I've educated myself better and I've met different people there's a whole range of things that you you and I really worry about the cancel culture I really worry and I worry about de platforming at universities and um because sometimes you have to listen to these people to go and using my mother's terminology go they're an idiot you know they have no substance they can't argue their corner they've got three sound bites but they can't do anything else so, um, you've, you've got to, and obviously there, there, there are views which are so apparent, which I would never follow someone's social, you know, there, there are, you know, there are definitely boundaries to, to that for me, but you've got to listen to difference. And, and the other thing with the Lords is that if you're in a debate, you've got to be in for pretty much all of it. So you, you listen to, you, you have a massive divergence of views on subjects. Um, cause ultimately what you're trying to do is, is the best thing. So yes, it's, you've got to listen to people and, um, you know, you've got to just continually sense check what, what you think. And, you know, the, the Lords is an amazing place. I mean, it's it's one of the most accessible and open places I've ever worked. It's the least misogynistic place I've ever worked. Um, uh, And you just have to remember it's not the real world, you know, where we have gold on the ceilings. You know, uh, I, I think... What, one of my things it, it's a massive privilege every day I walk into the building I pick up my staff pass I just think I am so privileged to have this but you just also have to remember that it's not the real world and that's my guiding principle every day is you know we have lovely afternoon tea and we have pastry chefs and but you know what some of the best and most challenging conversations I have had where I've challenged companies to do better for disabled people is over a cup of tea and a cream cake because you can have that conversation in a different way. So, you know, it's, it, it's opened my mind to, to lots of other ways of, of behaving
0: and doing things. Listening, so simple and yet so difficult. Tani Grey-Thompson, thank you so much for speaking to me on The Sacred. Thank you. So, Tani, um, honestly, she is an absolute delight and that is quite, <laughs> quite unusual. Not among sacred guests, um, specifically, but in various jobs at the BBC and at Theos, I had reason to be in contact with a lot of people who've had very, very successful careers, like Tani. And she's had two very successful careers, at least two, actually. And it's really difficult for that kind of life not to change you not to make you at least a little bit um, tunnel vision-y or harassed or distracted or hyper-focused. And so a lot of the people around you kind of bleed into the background somewhat. Um, And yes, power corrupts and success and fame does weird things to people, but it's often just milder than that, that you meet those kind of people and they just don't seem quite normal. And Tani is both astonishingly impressive and comes across as really very normal and very grounded and really good fun and lovely and warm. Um, And I think a lot of that will just be innate to her, but what comes through is just how amazing her family is and are and the power of good parents, the power of parents who fight for you and also require quite a lot of you um, at times. We have another episode in this series with Catherine Burblesing, who is um, known as Britain's strictest headmistress. Um, Actually coming from, I think, probably a different political perspective, although unclear and expressed in a different way, it sounds like Tani's parents had a not dissimilar approach, you know, to use what you've been given take agency, um, be grateful for what you have. That is just so matter of fact, it must have been such a struggle to raise two children with significant health challenges. And um, yeah, it's just immensely impressive. Um, The sport thing obviously seems silly, but I genuinely don't get it. And Ty really helped me that these intense experiences this kind of like i am alive uh, look at what i can do with my body it actually reminded me of labor as well how i felt in labor i loved labor like look at what my body can do massively empowered and yeah it was really helpful for me although <laughs> i said it to my husband afterwards i said uh, babe Tanny's really helped me understand why you love sport and it's about this very intense experiences of unselfing and ecstasy. And he said, "Uh, not sure that's what my mates and I are getting when we're just like chatting nonsense on WhatsApp while watching Match of the Day. So, you know, baby steps. Um, And obviously we spoke at the end about, sorry, terrible tonal gear shift, but we spoke at the end about um, some really hard things, about how difficult... Society still makes life for disabled people. Um, if you follow Tani on social media, you'll see that she's ever so polite and calm, but reports kind of painfully regular instances of the world just not being set up for her. And, um, yeah, she's just very honestly challenging about how little disabled people are asking. They just want a level playing field. Um, and how reluctant we seem to be to sort that out. Um and on assisted dying at the end, I'm always aware, you know, we've had guests on who are very pro changing legislation to allow assisted dying and guests on who are very nervous about it. And it is often um, people in the disability community, although Tom Shakespeare, um, a previous guest is more, much more open than Tani is. Um, and I'm just aware how sensitive and how neuralgic that subject is, particularly if you've been up close with someone suffering in the last few in the last season of their life. Um, So I just wanted to name that really and say I know this isn't a theoretical argument, either for the people who are terrified and want to stop it or for the people who are desperate for the law to change. So let's just be careful with each other as we disagree. S'il vous plaît. Um, Thank you for listening to this episode of The Sacred Podcast with Tani Grey-Thompson. It is produced by a crack team of Lizzie Harvey, Dan Turner and Drew Hawley. Sacred is a project of the think tank Theos and both Theos and The Sacred and my very own self are all contactable via the usual ways because you, dear listener, are very smart. And you can find us on the internet in a matter of mere seconds and we would love to hear from you. I really do get a lot of joy Even from people who write in saying, I really disagree with what this person said, or even I really disagree with you even talking to this person, as long as you're polite, I find that very stimulating. And obviously, if you are loving it, I want to hear that too. Um, And if you are loving it in particular, please do take 30 seconds to go. Leave us a review or perhaps even more helpfully, share an episode on your social profiles. The algorithms, I don't know if all of you have noticed this, but the algorithms have shifted a bit. Uh, in recent months and that have made it, I think, slightly more difficult for people to find the sacred. And obviously, I think the sacred could be a blessing to lots more people's lives. So we would like to enlist and request and invite your help with that. Please share an episode. Um, If you are one of the wise sages who does not have social profiles on which to share podcasts, maybe you could write it on a postcard, pop it through a neighbour's door, or put it on loudspeaker. Blasting in the stream. Okay, I'll stop. You get uh, the motivation. Please share if you can. We would be immensely grateful. Until next time.